Chapter Twenty Seven of Judge Burnham's Daughters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Judge Burnham's Daughters by Pansy. Chapter Twenty Seven. At Home. With Mrs. Hamlin, the feeling of irresponsibility, of yielding to the inevitable, continued after she reached home. She was very miserable, but the quiet beauty of her old room with its familiar belongings rested her nerves, though she did not know it. She was a deserted wife, disgraced, penniless, broken-hearted, yet the bed was so soft and its coverings were so pure and the pillows were so fair. She let hot tears soil their purity, but still she buried her face in their depths with a feeling that all these belongings fitted her as those with which she had had to do of late did not. And being very tired as well as very miserable, she quite soon forgot her sorrows in sleep. But with Mrs. Burnham the case was different. She was alone in the library, and the reaction from all the day's excitement was upon her. There was time for her to think over what she had done, and to imagine some of the results which might follow. It was not that she doubted the wisdom of her movements thus far. She was still upheld by the calm assurance that what she had done was the thing to do. But she could not, even with this assurance, keep her overtired brain from surmising results. What would her husband say? What would he do? Nothing apparently was more firmly impressed upon his mind than the fact that he had disowned his daughter, and here she was domiciled in her old room. Would Judge Burnham tolerate this innovation? From his wife's knowledge of him, gleaned by many experiences during the years, she did not believe he would and yet it had seemed to her the one thing to do. There was nothing for her but straightforward action in the line which was plain to her. Judge Burnham's duties she could not shoulder for him. But certainly the next thing for her was to write him a plain statement of affairs as they now stood. It was not an easy letter to write. She avoided the central figure of it longer than was her fashion. She told the absent father much about Erskine and his sweet bright ways, and much even about the common details of home life, before she brought herself to the sentence, And now I have something to tell that will alarm and pain you. I heard today some very startling news. What will you think when I tell you that? She held her pen at this point and considered. She had often spoken to Judge Burnham about the girls, she had often of late years said, your daughters, but now there was only one, and the circumstances were such that to say your daughter seemed almost to insult him. How should she manage the sentence? Her face, as she held her pen, waiting, and looked away into space with thoughtful yet resolute eyes, would have been a study for a painter. Did not this woman realize that she had deliberately, and of her own will, introduced once more into her home that which had been its chief discordant element in the past? No, after careful deliberation, I think I may say to you that she realized at last that such was not the case. Either you have been a thoughtless reader, or I have failed of my purpose, if you have not discovered that Ruth Burnham has reached higher ground than that on which her feet ever trod before." It is not easy to explain just how much that sentence means. It was not that she had reached serene heights, where daily pettinesses could not disturb her more. It was not that she was not keenly alive to the discomforts, to call them by no stronger name, 
that would probably come to her through this latest movement of hers, but it does mean that she was keenly alive to her mistakes in the past, and believed them to have been the chief sources of her unhappiness. One of them she knew had been a persistent effort to carry her own burdens even after she had been to the cross, and professed to leave them there. And another of them had been a persistent determination to do her own planning, even after she had asked the Lord to plan for her. These two mistakes she had resolved to make no more, and it was the thought that the one to whom Erskine had appealed for help had assuredly told her what to do, that held her eyes and her heart quiet, even though, so far as her foreknowledge went, there were seas of trouble yet to cross. Suddenly she bent over her paper, and the pen moved on. What will you think when I tell you that our daughter Minta is at this moment in her old room sleeping quietly? I went for her this morning and brought her home. I found her in a very third-rate house on Court Street. Think of it. She is not well, has a cough that reminds me painfully of Seraph. It seems that her miserable husband deserted her some weeks ago, left her quite without money in this wretched flat that he had rented on Court Street. Her meals were brought up to her, prepared by a woman who rented the kitchen, and made her living by serving the occupants of the rooms with badly cooked food. When I found her, she was on the eve of being turned out of even this refuge by the landlord's agent, because she owed for two weeks' rent. None of them seemed to be aware of her relationship to us. Of course I knew that she must come home at once. She was very willing to do so, for she felt sick and frightened. A line from Mr. Bacon, received since I reached home, informs me that there is very little doubt but that Hamlin, on whose track detectives have been ever since he fled the city, has been arrested, and is now in confinement awaiting trial. It is forgery again. Mr. Bacon thinks there will be no possibility of his escaping justice this time. I have not told poor Minta this, and do not know how to tell her. I think I will wait for advice from you. Meantime, your heart would ache for her if you could see her. She is very pale, and has grown alarmingly thin. I think the poor girl has suffered more than perhaps we shall ever know. It frightens me to think of her having been alone in that part of the city, and she so young and still so beautiful. And then had followed a few sentences expressive of her loneliness in his absence, and her hope that these days of separation were nearly over. And then this weary woman closed her writing-desk with a little sigh, because her heart could not escape wondering what he would say to it all. There was also perplexity as to the very next day. She could not determine what would be Minta's line of action, whether she would remain the pale, passive woman she was now, or whether she would rebel and insist on escaping ever so kind a control of her movements, or whether, indeed, she would assume that she had rights in that home equal, if not superior, to those of the woman who had brought her here. Ruth could not but admit that this last state would be more like the Minta Burnham of her acquaintance than either of the others, and, in view of her father's present position, would work disastrously for the girl. Having wearied herself after this fashion, imagining scenes that might take place, she suddenly remembered, with a smile of relief, that the part that was impossible for her to arrange, she had a right to leave. 
I think it was, perhaps, as well for both these women, that the next morning found the younger one quite ill. The program for that day at least was plain. Dr. Westwood must be sent for, and the role of decided invalidism must be carried out. It proved that the same line of action would do for several days. Minta was not alarmingly ill, but the doctor counseled quiet and utmost care, and Ruth, in arranging for tea and toast and lemonade and various cooling drinks, and seeing to it that her patient was made comfortable in many ways, had little time for troubled imaginings. As for Minta, the necessity for asking to have the glass or the handkerchief handed to her, or the pillow moved, and for saying thank you frequently, overcame much of the painful embarrassment with which the new day began, and for the most part she was quiet and submissive. As the days passed and she grew better, and was presently able to sit in the large easy chair and watch the passers-by on the street below, it became evident that she was very much subdued. One circumstance contributed largely to this result. Mrs. Burnham, in looking over a trunk of packed-away treasures, in search of something for which Minta had asked, came suddenly upon a little box of seraphs that had not been opened. It closed with a spring that Ruth did not understand, but as she held it in her hand, it appeared that her fingers must have touched the hidden spring, for it flew open, and on the top lay a letter addressed to Minta in her sister's familiar writing. Ruth, much moved, ceased her search, and carried the letter at once and in silence to the pale-faced girl lying back among the cushions of the easy-chair. She did not know, either then nor afterwards, what words Seraph had spoken for her last ones, but Minta's eyes were red with weeping when she saw her again, and her voice seemed gentler, and her manner more subdued after that time. It became apparent that she also had anxious thoughts about the future. She asked often for word from her father. When was he coming? Did he know that she was there? What had he said? And once she asked did Ruth think Papa would allow her to remain at home after all that had been. And Mrs. Burnham, whose heart was daily growing more full of pity for this deserted wife, who, even though she had sinned, was also certainly much sinned against, and who, though her love was so misplaced and so entirely selfish in its exhibition, had yet, in a sense, loved the man who had deserted her, felt that she would give much to be able to answer a hearty yes to this hesitating question, and did not know how to reply. Her husband maintained an ominous silence in regard to the news she had sent him. His letters came as regularly as usual, but they were shorter and she fancied colder. He was crowded with care and some anxiety. He hoped to get the complications straightened out before very long. She did not need the assurance that he would be at home as soon as possible, and then had followed messages for Erskine, very tender and fatherly, but not a word for or about Minta in any way. He seemed to have simply ignored her story. This boded no good for the future. There was nothing now but to wait with what patience they could. Each day it became evident to Mrs. Burnham that she was settling into the position held so long ago, looked upon by Minta as the intercessor between her and an indignant father, and each day she grew more doubtful about her ability to perform her part. Judge Burnham was cruelly proud. He had been cruelly stabbed, and very publicly, too. 
he had publicly disowned his daughter. Would his pride ever let him acknowledge her again? More and more the wife felt that this household needed other than human power to settle it into anything like peace. Her cry for help from the omnipotent became daily more earnest. There was notably in her experience a certain Sabbath evening when her prayer rose into the realm which perhaps might be reverently called wrestling. And then, one morning, when all the air was crisp with frost, and the earth was aglow in its latest autumn finery, came a telegram from Judge Burnham to his wife. Could she join him in Westford by the noon train to return that evening? Now Westford was a little city, but an hour's ride from their own greater one. Ruth had often been there, and there was nothing about the telegram in itself to cause her anxiety. She was frequently summoned to that or neighboring towns to meet her husband on business, to sign an important paper, to tell her version of a bit of news that had been supposed trivial, but which had suddenly, in the light of events, grown important. It ought to have been simply a satisfaction that Judge Burnham was at last so near to home as this, but about everything which could happen during these days there was an undertone of anxiety. It was an almost humiliating fact, but Ruth felt that she was somewhat in disgrace with her own husband, and dreaded while she looked forward to meeting him. Of course she must obey the summons, but she looked wistfully at Erskine, and was half ashamed to think how much she would like to be able to make herself think it sensible to take the child with her. He, too, was wistful. He never approved of his mother's absences from himself. He asked her the same question in many forms. Was she sure and certain and positive that she would return that very truly night? And would she bring Papa home with her? Over this last Ruth considered. The telegram was ambiguous after the manner of those two-sided messengers. Did it mean that she could return that night, or that they both would? She did not know. The utmost she could say to Erskine was, that she would come unless something which they could not foresee or help prevented, and that she would certainly bring Papa home if she could, and then she went away with all speed. Judge Burnham was on the platform before the train fairly halted. His greeting was warm, but he seemed preoccupied and in great haste. He hurried her into a carriage. I have to go at once to an important gathering, he explained. Will you mind coming in with me? I shall not be detained over a half hour. Is it a courthouse? she asked, as the carriage drew up before a large building. Will there be ladies present, Judge Burnham? No, he said. It is not a courtroom, but a public hall. Oh, yes, there would be plenty of ladies, but he should have to leave her and go to the platform. There was nothing unusual about this. He had often to go to the platform when there were gatherings for the discussion of public interests. He seated her in the closely filled hall and hurried forward. He was evidently being waited for. He had only time to lay aside his hat and exchange a few words with a gentleman who stepped toward him book in hand, and then Ruth watched her husband as he took the book and came forward to the center of the platform and began to read. And this was what he read. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. I do believe, I now believe that Jesus died for me. 
that on the cross he shed his blood from sin to set me free. Can I tell you anything about it, do you suppose, the tumult of amazement and of joy surging in his wife's soul? She felt her face grow pale and then red under the power of her emotions. She held herself by main force of will, quiet on the seat, when it seemed to her she must spring up before them all and shout for joy. Those words read by the voice which was to her the finest in the world, read with such a peculiarly marked emphasis on the personal pronouns as to tell her, even if his reading them at all under such circumstances had not done it, that he had made of this a personal matter. I do believe, I now believe that Jesus died for me. She said the lines over in exultant undertone, emphasizing the words as he had done, while the great company burst into song. This was surely the noon prayer meeting about which she had heard much and which she had never before attended. Almost with the last note of song mingled Judge Burnham's voice again, and he said, Let us pray. His wife bowed her head on the seat before her, and her whole frame shook with emotion. She did not know afterwards whether she prayed or cried or laughed. I know, she said long afterwards, telling Erskine about it. I know I said hallelujah, if that is praying. An elderly lady seated beside her regarded the slight figure draped in mourning with an air of tender sympathy, and when, a few moments afterwards, there came from the leader of the meeting an invitation for those who would like to learn the way to Christ to rise, that they might be especially remembered in prayer, the old lady touched her arm and whispered, Won't you stand up, dear? It will help you ever so much. Then Ruth turned toward her a radiant face, in which smiles were mingling with falling tears, and shook her head as she whispered back, I know the way. Isn't it glorious? But she could never give a very lucid account of that noon prayer meeting. There were other gentlemen who entered the same carriage with them, and there was opportunity for only an exchange of smiles between her husband and herself until they reached a hotel, and he had ordered and secured a private room. Then he took her in his arms and kissed her, his face indicating too deep feeling just then for words. It is a long story, my dear, he said when they were calmer, or rather it has been a long, long battle on my part and could be summed up in a few sentences. It began, oh, long ago, but it has been marked by a few very decisive incidents. That Sunday afternoon meeting, I never forgot it, Ruth, nor your way of putting the facts. You were logical, and your conclusion was inevitable, and I was angry that it should be so. I silenced you, but not my own conscience. I never got away from it. Then came our troubles, and your attitude through them all. You were different some way from what you ever were before. It angered while it awed me. I knew you were controlled by a power that I did not understand. About that time, too, Seraph told me many things that I did not know before. I began to realize something of what you had borne through the years. And then, Ruth, you know that I saw Seraph die. But the final appeal, he continued after a moment's silence, the final appeal came in that letter which I did not answer. The thought that you could voluntarily open your home again, after what you had borne, and I, her father, had disowned her. I cannot tell you all that it said to me. 
neither will i try to tell you now about the conflict it is a little too recent to speak of it calmly yet i will tell you this ruth i reached a point last sunday night when i felt sure that the decision must be made then and there for eternity i have struggled with this question for years and affected skepticism whenever that was the most convenient way of stifling conscience and affected indifference when my heart was fairly on fire and hidden behind inconsistencies of others and all that sort of flimsiness but last sunday evening it was as if the lord himself stood by me and said just this one more time my friend i offer myself as your advocate it all came over me in an instant ruth how often he had done it before and how certain i would be to offer my services but once to any man living and i well my dear i surrendered some time i'll tell you all about it but now let us have some dinner and then get home i was coming this afternoon i expected to reach you by the three o'clock train but i had to stop here on business and i met my old college friend malden he is here conducting these noon meetings and when he heard how it was with me he insisted that i should stay and lead this meeting and tell the business men where i stood i had determined not to write to you i wanted to tell my story but when he pressed this matter it occurred to me that it would be only a fair return for the surprise you gave me that sunday you know to telegraph you to meet me here and take you to prayer meeting with me i'm glad i did your face was an inspiration i shall never forget how it looked while i was reading that hymn what a glorious hymn it is did you bring papa home it was erskine's clear ringing voice which sounded down to them from the upper hall the moment he heard the grating of the latch-key in the street door did you bring papa home and the next instant he was flying down the stairs and while the poor young frightened wife was nervously walking up and down the hall above and wondering and fearing how she should meet her father judge burnham gathered his boy into his arms and said between the kisses in a voice which quivered with feeling yes my boy at last she has brought your papa home End of chapter 27 Recorded by Tricia G. End of Judge Burnham's Daughters by Pansy